Next year, by the way, uh, as you know from looking upstairs in the uh, Winter Garden, we have um, construction underway right now, and next year's 10th annual Constitution Day Conference will be taking place in our brand new auditorium. And if any of you uh, care to contribute to that construction, uh, Ed Crane will be glad, glad to speak with you, maybe take you out to lunch. Um, all right, it's time now, as I said, to bring this uh, to a conclusion, and we do this every year with the grand finale, the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. Uh, this is a lecture that arose from a grant, a very generous grant from Mr. Simon, Ken Simon, who was an entrepreneur and uh, an engineer who um, served in World War II. He um, was an engineer uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, had his own company, and became very successful. He was a great uh, student of American history and especially of the American Revolution, came to see the work that we've been doing at Cato in the area of constitutional thought and uh, approached us about uh, establishing a chair, which I'm um, pleased to say uh, he endowed uh, for me. And with it, uh, the establishment of the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought. This year, uh, we are extraordinarily honored to have as our Simon Lecturer one of the most distinguished uh, constitutional uh, scholars in the country, William Van Alstine, who holds the um, Lee Professor of Law at the Marshall White Law School, the College of William and Mary. The um, bio in your, in your package uh, gives you a summary of uh, Professor Van Alstine's uh, background. I will not um, go through all of that out of respect for both you and Professor Van Alstine. I also have here a seven-page point four, probably, type um, bio of Professor Van Alstine that goes page after page after page of his many uh, writings over the years. Um, he lists, for example, among his areas of specialization, the 14th Amendment, that's his first, the First Amendment, the Fourth, the Fifth, the Sixth Amendments. I notice you didn't put the Third Amendment there, Bill. Uh, the um, Second Amendment is, of course, another area in which he has expertise. He includes civil rights law, comparative constitutional systems, comparative law, constitutional law, constitutional history, constitutional tort litigation, copyright law, due process, education law, eminent domain takings, federalism, human rights law, race and American law, separation of powers, war powers, and he goes on and on, as do his writings. Um, Professor Van Alstine is a graduate of uh, USC and the Stanford uh, University Law School. Um, following uh, admission to the California Bar, he served as Deputy Attorney General of California, uh, he has taught at Ohio State, and for many years he taught at Duke uh, Law School. Um, the, um, his writings address virtually every major subject in the field of constitutional law. Uh, his work has been cited in, 
in a large number of judicial opinions, including by the Supreme Court. The Journal of Legal Studies for January 2000 named him uh, in the top 40 most frequently cited legal scholars in the United States of the preceding half century. Um, He's been a visiting uh, professor at a number of law schools, both here and abroad. In 1987, uh, he was selected in a poll of federal judges, by a federal poll of judges, lawyers, and academics by the New York Law Journal as one of the three academics among the 10 most qualified persons for appointment to the Supreme Court, a distinction repeated in a similar poll in The American Lawyer in 1991. He was elected in 1994 to the Academy uh, uh, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, again, we are simply thrilled to have him this year to be giving the uh, annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. Please welcome William Van Alstein. Thank you, Roger, for that introduction, friends. I'm surprised to see so many of you still here. The substance of the program has long since been concluded. And at best, this is what we call, my friends in Louisiana would call it lanyap. It's something extra added just to spice the stew of the day. Now, I brought along from uh, well-advised experience a lost leader, as it were. A lost leader, as you know, is, is something that's sold at cost or below cost to lure you into the grocery store and hope that you'll buy the rest of the stuff. So I brought a lost leader, uh, souvenir copies of the Constitution. Seems to me nothing could be more appropriate for the Cato Institute than to befriend those of you who have stayed along this, this long with at least something to carry away. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I'm doing that in just a second. First, let me make these available. <clears throat> So I had falsely expected there'd be more than enough to go around. I thought if we filled even the front half, that would be fine. Um, I'll tell you a very short story as to why I do this. It has to do with an interview on CBS a number of decades ago now. It was with Eric Severide and Martin Nagronsky on CBS, and they were interviewing in his office Hugo Black. Justice Black at that time had completed his 30th year of service on the Supreme Court. And he was closing in on the record of longevity on that court and consented to this interview in between sessions. At that time, the court would hear argument from about 10 to 12 on Monday, then break for an hour and a half at lunch, and then resume for two hours in the afternoon. So this interview was set in Justice Black's office. And he was rocking back and forth, practically bald with a fringe of white hair, with Severide and Nagronsky sitting out front and chatting about a variety of things. And um, <clears throat> they were asking him various questions. And, um, they, and he kept pulling out of the drawer, this desk drawer, something no bigger than this. And every once in a while, he'd start fingering it and opening it, and he'd caress the pages. And finally, Severide, who's very well-spoken, a little bit pompous, Severide said to him, Mr. Justice Black, is that by chance a copy of the Constitution? And Black, somewhat beamingly, actually said, well, yes, Eric, it is. But, Mr. Justice, you've been on the court for 30 years. You know it's a rather short document. Surely you know it by now. And Hugo Black turned the page or two, looked at a line and stroked, and he said, no, Eric, 
you'd be surprised how much you can learn just by reading it. Just by. <laughs> and I don't know whether Eric Severide actually ever read it. I'm sure he read a lot of decision. This was well into the heyday of the Warren Court. And to a certain extent, many of us celebrate the Warren Court as having made a lot of constitutional law. Others have misgivings about some of that era. One of the members of the court, who lasted as long as the Chief Justice himself, and was appointed about the same time, only a year part, was John Marshall Harlan, the grandson of the great dissenter from Plessy versus Ferguson. And John Marshall Harlan himself was the dissenter in the Warren Court. He was the one who was often throwing sand in the cogwheels of the Warren Court's progressive agenda. And I must tell you that in retrospect, John Marshall Harlan's Jr.'s opinions have held up extremely well those that were in the majority, and certainly many who were in dissent. So I make no apology for that. And that is a long, a roundabout way of introducing the topic that I've chosen to address with you, which has to do with what I would call clashing visions of the living constitution, the living constitution. Now, you may know that among judges, prospective appointees, and surely in academic life, there is an enormous range of views as to how you go about the right doing of constitutional law, whether you're teaching it, writing about it, legislating about it, signing or vetoing bills, or adjudicating it. And you can divide, in fact, in an earlier incarnation of this, it's on tape, it's not published, so it will not be uh, preemptive of the, of the Cato Journal, I assure you. You can, you can find as many as about 18 different views entertained over a period of time by judges and academics and major figures in the presidency and in Congress itself and elsewhere about the right doing of constitutional law. I'll revisit only two or three and then get quickly to the immediate topic. Um, one of these, which was fashionable when I was fairly still young in teaching constitutional law, came out of Stanford by a professor, full professor at the time, Tom Gray, and he called it non-interpretivism. Professor Gray's thesis was that <clears throat> many of the decisions of the court applying the Constitution either to sustain acts of Congress as authorized, which others felt might not have a proper basis, or other decisions of the court invalidating state statutes where others were finding a difficult pedigree for that outcome, suggested that the, that the business of interpreting the Constitution was a misguided request. And Tom Gray wrote a theory of the doctrine of non-interpretivism, which was that to make it a living constitution, it had to be adaptable to the change of circumstances, today's circumstances, not those of 1789, and then to keep the document alive, to keep it living. You had to import into it perspectives which might have been lacking in the original language, might not have been widely shared in an earlier time, but otherwise it's going to become a kind of quaint document that does very little. Um, that was Tom Gray's thesis. It was picked up by a professor at Northwestern, Michael Perry, who carried this thesis even more boldly and suggested a whole pattern of highly, what he regards, highly progressive decisions of laws that ought to be struck by the court by applying very muscular versions of certain clauses in the Constitution. I was somewhat uh, puzzled by this partly because I always thought that changes in the Constitution ordinarily ought to make the, the hurdles required by Article 5, that this is not a petrified tree, it's not a stone. In fact, it's not even like the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
which on, on one version were inscribed with the word of God, then God left the scene. And by one view, has not yet returned, you see. So that unless the Dead Sea Scrolls are just to be quaint little artifacts of a given period, in order for them to have contemporary meaning, we must turn to gifted rabbis who will superimpose a set of meanings to give them a new life, adapt them to today's circumstances, because they're dead. And God has not yet returned. Until he does, this is the best we can do. So that Tom Gray and... Um, whom did I mention from Northwestern? Michael Perry. Yeah, Michael Perry. Uh, were very enthusiastic about the, the, they, they took the approach. First in federalism, they took the approach coincidental with the New Deal, as you may recall. With the coming, with the extremely popular election of Franklin Roosevelt, he was then given an opportunity during three terms of re-election to restaff the Supreme Court. And restaff he did, including with Justice Black incidentally. And that produced a shift in the doctrines of federalism, did it not? Indeed, a lot of the cases that it held against acts of Congress is not being authorized. They simply exceeded any plausible construction of the enumerated powers thus far vested in Congress. They were overruled, and Congress was given freer reign. On the other hand, the Warren Court also greatly enlarged the field of protected civil liberties and of equal protection through extremely muscular reading of certain selected clauses. This device on the Warren Court, which, which both Perry and, uh, and the other man had called non-interpretive, Tom Gray, they defended that in order to make the Constitution a living document, some kind of latitude had to be recognized in the judiciary now to superimpose better constructions than might have been discovered there originally, even if it meant a certain contrivance with text. Otherwise, it would be like a petrified tree, a dead thing, or the living like the Dead Sea Scrolls, where the best a rabbi can do to make it pertinent to the modern Jewish community is to superimpose certain transitions that adapt to today's circumstances. So that was there. Now, I, when I was reading this, I was partly impressed, but I was nonetheless troubled by it because it seemed to play down the prerequisites of Article 5, that unlike the Dead Sea Scrolls, this charter did provide for change. It's tough. It's meant to be difficult. And you know, I'm sure, those of you who are up to date in any comparative constitutional studies at all, that a good number of modern constitutions that otherwise somewhat mimic ours, including federalism provisions and Bill of Rights provisions, and substantive judicial review. Provide greater latitude for changing the doc for amendment. Understand? In many of these constitutions, for instance, a mere supermajority in the national legislature is enough to make the change. That's true with the modern constitution of India. Finally, after it gained independence, you may know, India adopted its own constitution. It has a charter of rights. It has a national constitutional court. It also provides for amendments to the Constitution, however, by mere supermajorities in the Parliament. It doesn't take anything like this ordeal we have of ratification, either by three-fourths of these backward-looking state legislatures or, as a substitute, by three-fourths of the states meeting in convention. The original ten, ten amendments. Remember that it doesn't, it's not necessary. And there have been a number of changes made in the Constitution of India by mere supermajorities in Congress, in the Congress, in the Parliament. 
Most of these were during the administration of Indira Gandhi, who was distressed by certain rulings of the Constitutional Court of India, holding against certain legislation of a kind of anti-sedition character. She didn't like those decisions. The Congress party of which she was the head commanded well over two-thirds of all of the elected representatives in the National Congress of India. They willingly amended the document and they changed those provisions relied upon by the Constitutional Court of India. And when they reenacted much the same laws, this time they passed muster. Why? Because they were now congruent with the document as changed. So there are processes of change that are worked, worked into the warp and woof of some modern countries that we lack. Our process of authorized change is difficult, not impossible. 28 times, we are told. We've done it. Some amendments, very significant. That which animates this society more than others, doubtless, is the First Amendment. I regard it today, as I stand before you, as still the most important part of the entire Constitution, as did Hugo Black up to a certain point. Others cherish other amendments. The last one about which I wrote in any depth was as on an amicus brief following a law review article stimulated by Mr. Levy bankrolling the Second Amendment case the Heller case. Up until the Heller case, the conventional wisdom was that the Second Amendment meant only that to the extent that states wanted to have some kind of militia, they might be able to do so, subject to a lot of regulation by Congress. But outside, such weapon as you might be able to keep in safe storage, usually in an armory, because you're an active member of the state's organized militia, not yet called into national service, then the Second Amendment would protect it, up to a point. It was a kind of states' rights view of the Second Amendment. It is not until Mr. Levy helped to bankroll the Heller case that the Second Amendment was revived. And shockingly enough, albeit by one vote, its place in the Bill of Rights was finally established. There's some serious degree of personal right of gun ownership for self-defense when all else fails and the state is either unwilling or unable to come to your aid in defending your very life, that of your immediate family, or indeed even the place where you live. That was extended recently, as has been told to you, if you read, against the states through the 14th Amendment, the serious quibble being which is the more suitable clause. I have no doubt which it is. It's the Privileges and Immunities Clause. But that's a secondary matter. And that came out of the same, if it were not for Mr. Levy's serious interest in that question and his financial largesse in making possible the serious litigation, the Second Amendment would still be, it, would, it ought to be relocated textually, friends. It ought to be up there near the Tenth Amendment that each state has a right to have some kind of organized militia. How much? That's a secondary matter. And um, it may appoint the officers and how it will be equipped and disciplined. That may be up to Congress and how it may be frequently nationalized and taken out from under state control, that's up to Congress. That, that would be, if you like, the federalism view of the Second Amendment. Am I clear with you? It's states' rights amendment. Heller makes it a personal right, roughly akin to First Amendment rights. Not absolute. No one today thinks that, that, that Holmes is wrong in saying that, that even the most um, um, severe protection of freedom of speech does not privilege a person knowingly and falsely to shout fire in a crowded theater. That old saw, that irresistible counterexample by Holmes still lives, and we have some variation with us today. 
Hugo Black even agreeing in the margin that the First Amendment freedom of speech is not absolute. It does not allow merchants knowingly to misrepresent the nutritional value of their food, then sell it to you at a market price and laugh all the way to the bank when you come back and want their medical bills paid or something else, or the FTC comes down on them for false and misleading advertising. There's never been an absolute view of the First Amendment. There's not an absolute view of the Second Amendment. But there is, within the court in recent history, a renewed tendency to take it seriously. Am I clear with you? That's what this is about. It is one of the reasons why, among the organizations which I admire, one of which I was national president of for some years, that's the National AUP, the American Association of Universities, professors, the ACLU, on whose national board I served for about four years, the Federal Society, and Cato, on which I serve in no capacity. I currently most admire Cato because it's, there's a kind of doctrinal consistency in its commitment. Uh, its interest is as much as in the federalism field as it is in the civil liberties field. It's an eminently reasonable, and I'm very privileged to be here and want to express my gratitude to their hospitality and hope that this will work out. Now I've got to get to the subject, finally. Right, that's right. <clears throat> and that is the, uh, these dilemmas on how do you keep the Constitution up to date, reasonably contemporary, <clears throat> and yet not a palladium by means of which judges inscribe their notions as to what it ought to do. <clears throat> which is partly why I always like the story about Hugo Black when he was coming for this. And, and, and as I've reminded you, Eric Severide finally said, well, Mr. Justice Black is a rather short document. You've been on the court for 30 years. Surely you know it by now. And Justice Black just beamed rather than being intimidated. He said, no, Eric. You'd be surprised by what you can learn just by reading it. It is partly, friends, why, when all else fails, I would like you, as, as long as there were some copies for you, to take away a copy. On your own time, read it sometime. It's very refreshing. You'd be surprised, as Justice Black said, after 30 years on the court, what you can learn just by reading it. Now, I tend to read it as enumerating certain powers, which do enjoy a presumption of generous construction, but they do not confer a general police power on the national government. Am I clear with you? There isn't any power that enables Congress by specific language to pass laws for the purpose of advancing the health, safety, morals, or general welfare of the people of the United States. There is a clause that deals a little bit with that concept that's a spending power, and we'll come back to it shortly. There is no such power. This is a national government of enumerated power only. And one of the questions is, how do you read that enumeration of power? Fair enough? The tendency has been beginning with the New Deal years, especially, not exclusively, but emphatically since that time, to read them, and with some authors, including the two I've prominently mentioned, as committing to the political departments the determination of their scope. It's called deference review. And to a certain extent, there's a measure of truth in it. The, the argument runs roughly like this, that to the extent that Congress has, is a co-equal department of the national government, its, its members take the same oath as the judges take. Look at Article 6. It says so. The members of Congress take the oath to support and defend this Constitution. That's the same article that makes the Constitution the supreme law of the land, and only such acts of Congress are pursuant 
uh, consistent, authorized by and not prohibited, are part of the supreme law. The Constitution is first. After all, that's the basis of Marbury versus Madison and judicial review itself. But the argument is they take all the same oath, and unless their rendering as they pass laws seems completely far-fetched, virtually irrational, the court itself being less representative of the people of the United States, ought to defer to their construction of their own powers. Am I clear? This is what you'd call deference federalism review. Deference federalism review. Now, an, an, a different view, which I entertain, and I want to persuade you is the more correct one, is that it is not improper for members of Congress themselves to be concerned with the substance and the scope of their power. Members in Congress, um, on the one hand, I think Senator Dirksen was of this view, and in other cases, someone as to the left of Senator Dirksen is Senator Hart of Michigan reflect this view. They're not saying that the judges don't have a separate consecutive obligation of their own, but they do say, we take an oath to support and defend this Constitution, and there may be an occasion when the policy reflected in the legislation the President has asked us to adopt is not one with which I find fault, but I don't think we have any power to pass this law. I don't think it's given to us. I'm afraid it's reserved for the, plural, the pluralism of diverse attitudes on the subject matter of the states. And so, on that basis, I cannot find a, a plausible constitutional base and won't vote for it. I'd put that on the basis that I cannot find the authority. Now, believe it or not, members of Congress have sometimes expressed their no vote just this way. Senator Dirksen did this. I still remember the occasion very well on a Friday afternoon when he's standing on the steps of the Capitol being interviewed by Roger Mudd on the week's activities. And they've just then about to pass the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Fair enough, this reaches the private sector, forbids varieties of discrimination by homeowners and others. And Everett Dirksen has just cast a no vote. And Roger Mudd's interviewing them, and he, and he puts the microphone up there, and he says, Senator Dirksen, now I remember very well just four years ago, in 1964, you were still the minority leader in the United States Senate, and you voted for the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, particularly Title II with its public accommodations provision based on the commerce power. It says, how do you reconcile your vote this time? And the Wizard of Ooze, as we like to call Senator Dirksen affectionately, looked at him and said, well, Roger, he says, if there's one thing houses don't do, they don't move across state lines. <laughs> <laughs> And you, 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 whatever else you thought about the senator, you, you had to feel a little warm that he probably, he actually believed that, and he said, that's it for me. So it's not that he was against the idea. Maybe if they'd found something else, maybe if they based it even on the 13th Amendment, which incidentally is the ultimate basis on which the court tended to uphold that statute, not the commerce power, he might have felt different. But that was his... Now, nobody would fault... They might say, I think the senator was incorrect, that he's misunderstood the scope of their authority. But you couldn't doubt the, the old man's integrity. And nothing in my lecture or my views about this doubt that, any more than I mean to cast doubts on the president's independent prerogative of constitutional review. There are a number of instances when bills have come before the president where he's not taking exception to the policy that's reflected, that's a legislative desire bill, that we ought to be able to do this, but that he's returned the bill to the House of its origin 
with his misgivings that I cannot find any adequate Article I or other pedigree sufficient to authorize the scope of this kind of legislation. And, and he sends it back. Now, this is not conclusive. The veto can be overridden by two-thirds, as you know. And that's it. We've cleared out Congress. We've cleared out the president. Now what is left? Under one view of deference review, you got it? Deference review would say, if the Congress and the president or the Congress overriding the president have reached a conclusion that this bill is consistent with the authorizations and not forbidden by the prohibitions. Who are the nine judicial oligarchs, lifetime unremovable jerks to gainsay the decision of the political departments? That's what you call deference review. Am I clear? Now, this is a cottage, this starts, believe it, in the late 19th century. You don't remember this, but some of you may. James Bradley, James Bradley Thayer of the Columbia Law School popularized this view and suggested the Supreme Court ought to get out of the business of independent substantive constitutional review. Am I clear? That as long as a reasonable person, not that we agree with them, but is there any reasonable basis on which a reasonable person might conclude that X is authorized to Congress and the more representative branches so conclude by enacting this law, then who are the judicial oligarchs to say otherwise? Now, that's not an unreasonable view, and it was very popular. And with the New Deal, FDR delivers the goods because he begins the appointment of justices to the court who will yield substantive constitutional review except in cases of certain selected aspects of the Bill of Rights, maybe the Equal Protection Clause, over to Congress. On federalism questions, the FDR court overruled the old court to a very considerable extent and made the outer reaches of the New Deal and the, and the gradual demise of federalism possible. Where it's still demise, there's been a slight backup. There was this little sliver of decisions. That's right, and it does. Begins with the Usry case, where the modern court said, well, we're not denying the propriety of constitutional review by those federal officers who are also bound by, bound by their oaths of office. But we too are bound, and we cannot yield our obligation merely because they felt in, in a manner, even if we thought they believed what they said rather than it just being hooked up for good. It's independent. So I go back even to John Marshall who took this view. You can talk about the independent obligation and prerogative of Congress and the president. Also, as Justice Roberts said in a case, in his dictum was later made infamous, I do not myself think it's discreditable, where he said the sole obligation of this court, when an act of Congress is brought before us in a given case, and it is being challenged because inconsistent with some provision in the Constitution, we have our own obligation. That is to lay the act of Congress alongside the provisions with which it is alleged not to square and de determine whether they square. That others in their office have reached a given conclusion acquits them of their obligation if they do it conscientiously. But it doesn't quit us of ours. So I would describe this, if you like, as consecutive constitutional review. It is not to fault members of Congress for voting no, as Senator Dixon, Dirksen did in 1968, to the extent that he believed the act in reaching into the private sector too far could not be adequately related to the commerce power, so he votes no. Phil Hart did the same thing with regard to certain acts of Congress 
describing certain new national crimes. He simply couldn't find an authorization. Others may. I don't fault them if they do their work. But that's not conclusive. It doesn't, it does not prejudice the, the veto obligation any more than when Thomas Jefferson was president. You may recall this. You should for the Cato um, organization. It dealt with the Alien Sedition Act. They had been adopted by the Congress when the Federalists were in power under John Adams. The president thoroughly approved the Alien Sedition Act. They were applied. They never went to the Supreme Court. But even some of the Supreme Court justices, writing circuit, had presided in several of those cases and had sustained them in, this, in the trial courts. Understand it was never subject to Supreme Court review. Adams then loses to Jefferson in the marvelous election of 1800. 34 ballots in the House of Representatives were required to pick the presidency in 1800. Not because Adams and Jefferson tied. Do you remember who tied in the Electoral College? Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. My God, that's right. The assassin, if you will, of Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury and principal author of the Federal. What a right and terrible thing. But I'll give you a postscript to that. When Aaron Burr's fortunes turn bad and he doesn't win the presidency, he trots off to the Louisiana Territory in order to try to put on foot the seizure of the territory. Not against the United States. We don't own it. That comes later when the Napoleon is wanting money and sells it to us for a, a bunch of change. Aaron Burr raises some people down there, and he's arrested and put on trial for treason. You don't remember this. He's tried before the trial court in Virginia. Who's the presiding judge? John Marshall. That's right, John Marshall. Very interesting, wonderful case. You should go back and read it. Aaron Burr gets off primarily because of a decision by John Marshall. Aaron Burr, in the defendant's docket for this treason case, says he denies that he was setting on foot a military expedition against the United States. That wasn't his ambition at all. It was to seize the territory and establish a separate sovereign government and maybe eventually qualify for statehood. That's what he said. It's not to aid any enemy of the United States. There's no declared war, much less provide them aid and comfort. And he said... I believe that a letter that the President of the United States actually received from the U.S. military general in the Louisiana Territory will support my claim that this was not an expedition to oppose any interest of the United States. What happened in the particular case is that the President of the United States declines to furnish the letter. Then they apply for a show cause order. A subpoena, that's what it is, a subpoena, Dukas, take them. It's an old-fashioned one. They say, this piece of paper is, is deemed relevant and may be admissible to try to prove whether or not the claim made by the guilty accused, the defendant, is well taken or not. Then you've got a claim of executive privilege. It's a marvelous case. You should read the opinion by John Marshall in the trial of Aaron Burr. What happens is that... John Marshall issues a, a show cause order to produce the paper in court for the benefit of the accused so he can try to vindicate his factual claim that he was not setting on foot an armed expedition against the United States. Jefferson releases the paper. It goes into court. It vindicates Burr, and he's allowed to go free. That's the immediate background of the particular case in the treason trial of Aaron Burr, believe it or not.
It's a very interesting case between Marshall and Jefferson at the time. And ever since then, there's, there's been a nice cluster of constitutional litigation on this, the range of executive privileges held. I'm sure you're familiar with these. I'm not going to further into them now, but they're a nice bundle of cases. The extent to which the executive is exempt from constitutional obligations to furnish evidence that may be vital. Not, not something else that came back even in some of the Watergate cases. I won't go into them now, but you should know them. So the, the position that was being taken, the position that's taken in Marbury versus Madison, the case, first one ever to hold an act of Congress under the Constitution, is 1803, friends, it's not 1789, 1791, it's not even a Bill of Rights case, is of this kind. John Marshall does not say the Supreme Court is the exclusive expositor of the Constitution. Marshall versus, Marbury versus Madison merely stands for the proposition the judges take an oath equal to that taken by the other officers to support and defend this Constitution as supreme law. Part of that oath is, therefore, also to uphold as supreme law such acts of Congress as are pursuant to it, i.e., authorized on the one hand by it and not prohibited on the other. Fair enough? And so, too, right down the line. It does not diminish the responsibility or prerogative of the coordinate departments to exercise a prerogative of substantive constitutional review. It simply is not conclusive. The court did not defer in Marbury versus Madison. And in none of the other cases where it has struck acts of Congress has it deferred. Now, there have always been the view, let them defer. Indeed, some of my colleagues, active in constitutional now, and I'm very fond of him. I, this is not to diminish him, it's just to uh, Jesse Choper who long at the, at the University of California, Bolt Hall, and a prominent author on maybe the most widely used casebook, took the view that the Supreme Court should proclaim all federalism questions as non-justiciable. By non-justiciable meaning committed exclusively to the political departments. And if Congress and the President are convinced, or say they're convinced, that what they're presuming to do in legislation is not inconsistent with the doctrine of enumerated powers properly understood among progressive people, then that should be on in the court. It should just wall it off and say, we've had enough. This is as non-justiciable as other matters which are textually committed to their discretion. That's one view. Now, <clears throat> that's non-interpretivism in my opinion. <clears throat> and and um, I once wrote Tom Gray when he was on this kick this was before Michael Perry was prominent, and wrote him a friendly letter with a mischievous question. I said, Tom, which clause in the Constitution are you not interpreting today? <laughs> I can tell from your writing what you're not interpreting, but which are you not interpreting? What clause might it be? And, and shortly thereafter, the downstream articles by Tom Gray at Stanford shifted their locution. He gave up the phrase non-interpretivism. He used a new phrase called non-original interpretivism. You got it? Now, I don't mean unoriginal. I mean non-original. <laughs> We're all capable of highly unoriginal interpretations. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> right. If I need something to beat Roger from calling a halt to this lecture prematurely, um, I'll, I'll interpret this as a suitable, you know, shillelagh or whatever is necessary. So he's... He switched his locution to non-original interpretivism, and by that he meant where we're coming closer to today's subject, that although the, the interpretation we're now rendering may bear no fair correspondence, 
either to the text or the text when ambiguous as originally advertised, as understood, as represented, what it will do and not do. It's a living constitution. We're the living. We're to be bound or not bound. It is for us to say the living. This is our constitution. It is not the constitution of these dead white men from, uh, from 140 years ago. It's pointless. So he changed that. Michael Perry does the same thing on the other side. The other side, I mean, Tom Gray's writing was mostly to try to reinforce the political victory of the New Deal, that the court would no longer be in the business of adjudicating whether Congress had any authority to do that which it presumed to do and would switch its agenda entirely to an enforcement of the Bill of Rights. Am I clear? Michael Perry wanted to, uh, to um, do the same thing in an additional extent, and, and that was to say that, that the court should use this business of, no, of, of, of non-original interpretivism in construing the Bill of Rights so that they might cover more species of liberty and cover them to a much wider extent than others might find either as suggested in the text or where it's not clear, and it's often not clear. It is it's often not clear by trying to discover historically what the problem was, what was being addressed, and to what extent did they mean to try to address it. It's up to the tippy toes to the Second Amendment. What kind of problem was being addressed in the Bill of Rights, as you know? As you may know, for instance, the Bill of Rights is, is drafted in Virginia, drafted mostly by James Madison, a few in Virginia. It circulated elsewhere, and originally it comes from a list of, of I think, 24 proposed amendments out of states some of which had ratified eagerly, some of which very reluctantly ratified, on the, on the minimum understanding that once Congress was underway, an effort would be made to put in the protection of certain rights so that within the scope of its enumerated powers, still they couldn't use those powers to do X, Y, and Z, such as to abridge the freedom of the press or of speech and a number of other things, or to authorize general warrants of search, you see? And these suggestions came up from various states, most notably from Virginia, more from Virginia than any other single polity. And um, what happens is Madison winnows them down. In the first Congress, as you know, as, as every member of Cato ought to know, from a group of 24 original ones that came from the various states, some that ratified, some that didn't, including, including willful Rhode Island that held out. My God. Rhode Island refused to send anybody even to the Philadelphia Convention, and then when they got the Constitution as proposed by the Congress, refused even to meet in convention to consider it. They were so much against it. They were the last state finally to ratify, oh, I think about 50 years after it went into effect. But that was that. Madison winnowed that list down to a group of 12 amendments. Now, you may not know this, but you should know it. The first two of Madison's list of 12 did not achieve an adequate consensus, as it were. They were approved by Congress. Twelve amendments were approved by two-thirds of both houses in 1789. The first two got five and four and five ratifications, and they didn't get enough. Got it? The uh, numbers three through 12 did, as of 1791, and wham, that's our Bill of Rights. What is actually... The Third Amendment is our First Amendment. There were two others preceding that. Now, as a postscript to that story, and then I'll finally get to this subject, believe it or not. <laughs> finally, it's all prologue, right. One of those amendments, one of those amendments, 
was an amendment that said no bill um, raising the salary or emoluments of Congress shall be effective until an election shall have intervened. That is, my friends, the original proposed Second Amendment as it came from Congress in 1789. It's part of that first session when Madison had proposed these things. As it happened, it did not get enough ratifications in the next two years. So it hung there, if you will. Somewhere around 1868 or 69, the legislature of the territory of Utah approved it. Fair enough? That, then, and, and then a few other states did. And then along came about 1970, a graduate student at the University of Texas, not even a law student, PhD in constitutional history, <laughs> rediscovered this amendment and began to trot it around. It became very popular. And by 1974, if you counted from 1789, you got up to the number 38. 38. That's three-fourths of the state legislatures. If you counted for that period of time. If you didn't count, you couldn't do it. There were dicta from the Supreme Court of the United States dealing with this same problem back in the 1920s with an opinion shared by Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., as a matter of fact, that took the view that those first, the first two of the original proposed amendments had died from desuetude. That is to say that they, they attracted so few ratifications within any plausible view of a contemporaneous period of time as to have lost their currency and that they could, they could not be ratified and become a part of the country unless reenacted, restored, restated by a more contemporary Congress. That was the view of the Supreme Court in strong dicta in the 1920s. Nevertheless, when the 38th state counting from 1789 came through, Congress resolved not even to hold hearings on the question and said, we don't want to be misunderstood. And they immediately passed a resolution of ratification. They sent it over to the government's printing office, so the copy of the Constitution you have shows that amendment. And that is with us now. Congress can still raise its salaries, but the act can't take effect until at least one of these biennial election term until next next if they raise them recently then the bill can't take effect until after the November election because that gives you a ballot box opportunity you see to say no at the ballot box but that's 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 that amendment now my own view is that that amendment lapsed from a time and that, that was the view of the court as of the 1920s in the amendment process. That's not the current view. And so it's, it is published here. It's taken for granted. It's, it's of equal stature to the rest. That's not our subject. Now, I've taken too much of your time all in prologue. <laughs> right. But I do want to suggest that there is, there are, there is another way of making a living constitution. And that will be the burden of my published remarks, though I'm going to have to wrap them up in less than 10 minutes and engage you in a hypothetical to show you how challenging this question is. And that's those are amendments. The, 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 the metaphor I want to give you is a metaphor that's drawn from my home state, California. In Northern California, up above Sacramento, in Mendocino and Humboldt and Shasta counties, there are the old-growth redwood trees. 
These are state and national forests. These are groves of trees that grow to a height of 380 feet, believe it or not. They're about the tallest living things on Earth. And they're the second oldest living things on Earth. I'll tell you the oldest living things. They're also out there in the West. They're up in the Sierra Nevadas. Never mind for now. Now, how do you know the, 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 these redwood trees are living? Because from the beginning, from the time they were just coming up, every year they add an annualization ring. You can remember from high school botany, I hope, from, from, they're called cambium rings, C-A-M-B-I-U-M. Fair enough? And it's very interesting. Every once in a while now, one of these great giants, I go up there at least every two years, and I still like to go with my brother to hike. One of these giants, they're protected now. They fall. They just fall of age and drought and, um, and other things. They'll fall. Often, however, a forester will come through and cut right through the trunk. It separates them. You can walk through the cleavage, and you walk, you may pause, and you'll see the, you'll see the cambium rings. You'll see these annual rings. These rings capture the chemistry of the year of that year's growth, the little change, as it were. They record it. They integrate it into the chemistry of the living tree. Now, when the tree finally falls, that's it, friends. That's truly it. You can go across that face, and the foresters have put these pins in. If you've never done this, you can even do this in the outside of San Francisco in the Golden Gate Park. There's the John Muir Woods. Ever been to the John Muir Woods? There's a grove of redwoods, and some of these giants are, are carved across with the same thing. You'll find little pins in them. They're very identifying. You look at this pin, and you've counted back, and you can count year by year, and you get to the year 1776. You say, my God, that was a big year. Right. You count further back, it's 1492. You know what's happening then. You count back, it's 1066 and all that. It's the Norman invasion. You count further back, friends, it's 0 AD. You count further back. I told you, these giants live up to 3,500 years old. You can count back to the birth of Confucius, pre-New Testament history. The chemistry records it. Now, the Cambian ring, while they're being added, prove this is a living tree. Am I clear with you? Once the tree falls and petrifies, it's dead as its doornail. You can't, it is as, as, as Omar Khayyam, all your piety, nor all your piety and your wit can call, call back half a line. There's nothing more to be done. So if it's petrified, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. What can you do to make it living? You can't add any cambium ring. There, it's gone. All you can do, therefore, is if you want, I don't want to, but some do. You can then turn to some group of rabbis and say, well, these are Dead Sea Scrolls. You can't add anything because God wrote these words and inscribed on the rolls, then disappeared. We have not seen him, and until he comes again, there's nothing we can do. But meantime, we have lots of contemporary problems and challenges. Give us an interpretation, Rabbi, that's pertinent to our time. You understand? Those are the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are petrified trees. There's nothing you can do other than the art of imagination. Now, the other comparison I want to give you, and with this, I really had an exercise in mind to have you treat a very modern challenge to the court. 
And if, if, you'll, if you'll let me, if you'll hold me over by popular demand, I'll give it to you, but otherwise I won't, is, um, is um, Hans Christian Andersen's It's the Fable of the Emperor's New Clothes. If you don't, you can't remember it offhand, I'm going to punish you by reminding you. This is the case of the, of the emperor and the, and the clever tailors. Do you remember? And the tailors, he goes to see the tailors because there's going to be a public procession in the streets of Copenhagen. They measure them. They get out the very fancy gold and silver brocade and silver brocade, and they measure them. They trim them here. And he comes back, and uh, there's nothing there. There's nothing there except in his imagination. And the tailors pretend to be pinning him up. And they stand back and say, oh, my God, doesn't he look beautiful? Isn't this super? Isn't it beautiful? And they, they persuade the emperor that this is it. He's paid them some money, and they've taken his brocade, and they've put him out with his underwear. Now it's time of the parade, and you remember from Hans Christian Andersen's fable, it's the emperor's new clothes. He's at the head of the parade. The people are assembled along the streets of Copenhagen. They don't want to be rude, and they certainly don't want to be intimidated by the emperor. So they comment along the way how beautifully he's dressed, how lovely his raiment, how he's so well covered by this astonishing garment, except for one little boy who can't see it. And he says, he's naked. And suddenly people begin to laugh and titter. And that's it. It's all over. Now, I'm put it to you, the function of the Supreme Court is not that of the applauding crowd that wants to see the emperor as suitably dressed in an adequate raiment. If the emperor lacks for suitable clothing, if Congress lacks the authority to deal with certain modern problems, whether they're environmental, criminal, or something else, then indeed let us resolve, as we have on many other occasions, to grant them that authority. That is the amendment process. It is not that difficult. It's not easy, friends. If it were easy, we don't care about constitutional law. Cato can disband. And that's true with most even written constitutions in the world. They are nothing other than like super statutes. They may require a little larger than the standard majority in the national body to modify, but they can be done rather easily. Ours is not impossible, but it is hard. It is hard. Those justices whom I most admire in, in their fiber and those academics whom I most admire, like Hugo Black in many respects, are those which say the Constitution is indeed meant to endure for ages to come, to be adaptable, right? But the circumstance of adaptability are those that are described and set forth in the ordeal of amendments. You do not lightly change the fundamental law. You do not lightly reallocate power from out of the states into Congress without the pause that is meant to refresh. And that requires that you satisfy the requisites of Article 5. Fair enough. Now, believe it or not, that was Hugo Black's position. A new dealer as he was, he began to be a gainsayer to the court's uh, routine in federalism. The modern court, frankly, principally under the stewardship, qualified, limited, modest of William Rehnquist kind of revived federalism. They did not go back and overrule all the New Deal decisions, but they refused to continue to defer and to defer and to defer and to convert, for instance, the power to regulate commerce among the several states into an unqualified police power. They couldn't find it. They didn't do it. 
and I'm glad they didn't. Federalism, therefore, ought not be regarded as some kind of misfortune. Federalism, as Louis Brandeis said, preserves the option of smaller laboratories of experiments to vary, to kind of compete with alternative autonomous lifestyles and by the allure of, of their own tailored regimes in certain areas of the law, either people will like it and come and join them or they will be adversely affected and they'll take their, their bodies and their savings and their attributes and move elsewhere. That federalism has its own checking, if you like, function. And that was, believe it or not, that was a view taken by Louis Brandeis. Up to a point, it was taken by Holmes himself, a great nationalist, three times wounded in the Civil War, wrote some towering opinions on federalism, but that was his view too. That is my view as well, and I, I still retain some hope. Now, that I, I, my own view is that, and this is how I want to conclude, certain recently proposed amendments I wish had been ratified. I professionally and personally favored the so-called Equal Rights Amendment. In my view, that was the real 27th Amendment. It, had, it was proposed originally in 1972. It achieved ratification in 34 states in the, in the first seven years. It was having trouble. It then ran into real headwinds. Congress extended the deadline for another three years. It could never get to the magic number of 38. I'm sorry about that. I liked it. And I did not think that it was a revolutionary amendment, but that it would then put into the document a cultural change that had already been adopted in many states, both by state statute and in state constitutions, and that we were, we were prepared for it. It did not necessarily mean that there would be women in the foxholes or we'd have to have desegregated restrooms. If you read the amendment and the debates over it, it did not mean that. But it did say it would be something different. It never was ratified. Now, many in this room won't even remember the ill-fated 27th, won't give a damn. There's a good reason why you might not remember it and why you need not give a damn, and that is that because about 99% of the Equal Rights Amendment was enacted by the Supreme Court. In its construction of the Equal Protection Clause, it has read into that clause and into the invisible Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment most of the work that the, the, those who proposed it and those who defended it had proposed for the Equal Rights Amendment. So to a certain extent, and I close with this note. My concern about this is not merely sharing the general orientation of the Cato folks, that I do, as you can tell, but it's also with what I regard as now the new negative synergy of constitutional evolution in this country. And it works this way, and I'm sorry about it. It is that the more the court volunteers to keep this a living constitution by innovating new meanings conducive to the prevailing view as to what ought to be uh, permitted to Congress as well as what ought to be forbidden, the more, it, the more the amendment process, the real authorized processes of change in our constitution diminish until they become secondary, indeed fearful, because what has happened and what happened to the Equal Rights Amendment and I was involved in the ratification debates in not less than three states, is this. Now, if you propose anything other than a trivial amendment, you will run into serious legislative headwinds in a number of state legislatures, not because necessarily 
on its face they think the amendment is a bad idea, but because they have been tutored to fear the leverage it may provide the judges. To read it, overread it, misread it, and use it as a lever to do additional and different things. Now, if that, all I can tell you, if you look back historically at this, is I want you to think about it. If you look back at 1789 and Madison's list of proposed amendments that became the Bill of Rights, I believe you yourself will conclude by applying your reading of today's problems back to those times, we would not have a Bill of Rights. People would never have trusted the words that appear in the first eight amendments. They'd say, no, no. God only knows how the court will apply these things. Fair enough? It would never have gotten around. We'd not have a Bill of Rights today. This is what I call the negative synergy of these deviant theories of constitutional interpretation as applied by judges. So I'm, in this regard, like Hugo Black. This is an old document, but a good one. It makes change plausible. It makes it difficult. It should be difficult when you're altering the fundamental law. The processes of Article 5 are not easy. They're not insuperable. We've had some great changes. No doubt the most significant in my own view are the trilogy of the Civil War amendments. We did change federalism for the better. We did it by amendments. And even if you construe those amendments modestly, they're very strong. They made some real changes in binding the states in ways that they were previously free to disregard and did, did disregard. That pr those processes of constitutional change are not to be denigrated or belittled in my view. This growth industry of non-interpretivism, and I'll close with one other observation, that was Bruce Ackerman at, at Yale. He, I call them Ackerman Amendments. Uh, Bruce Ackerman's his suggestion is this that if if the president is reelected and the and the con and the country is divided over constitutional issues and he's promising a real change and great majorities reelect him and they reelect and they elect his party into congress with insurance they will change things then the people themselves through the election process have authorized another kind of constitutional amendment you, it's outside of Article 5, you understand? It was not formally, it not been ratified. It is rather, there's been a sea change politically speaking. It's validated by the political process. I call them Ackerman Amendments. And I call those who, I call this Ackermania, as it were. And the only thing that's lacking is there is no text there. I still feel and want you to feel, as the small child in the streets of Copenhagen, he looks naked to me. Thank you. All right, just time, time for a couple of questions. Uh, let me just start by uh, noting that um, it was Bruce Ackerman who called that a constitutional moment that took place in 1937 and 38. Um, as you doubtless know, there was a great debate in the first um, four years of the Roosevelt administration. William Luchtenberg, the great uh, constitutional historian, whom I'm sure you know, Teaches, yes, he teaches now down at the University of North Carolina, uh, has cataloged uh, that debate in some detail, in which there were two schools. One school said that the nine old men 
were just dead wrong uh, that the Constitution allowed all that Roosevelt wanted to do. The other said, no, they're right. Uh, what we have to do is amend the Constitution. Uh, I gather that you think that the, um, the, the latter school was correct because what we've had since then is amendment by judicial decision rather than by Article 5. Um, is it your view, therefore, that had the court stood its ground, had the appointments not been made as they subsequently were, that it would have forced a const- a, an amendment of the Constitution through the proper method of Article 5? Is that microphone right there? Well, by, by stipulation of your remarks, that would have been the that would have been the prerequisite for that change. Whether it could have come about, I'm not prepared to say. Everybody in this audience is at least suitably situated to judge that as well as I. My guess is that there would have been some amendment of some degree, not to the extent that we have now realized merely by judicial fiat without benefit of it. Um, it is likely that some degree of alteration in Article One would have been forthcoming. But um, so be it. I would be reconciled with that. Not every amendment has, to me, has been objectionable. I think the 13th Amendment, for instance, was very well advised. Involuntary servitude, other than its punishment for crime, is forever prohibited in the United States. It applies to the private sector. Peonage is out. It's just as well. Now, are all personal service contracts forbidden? No. It's a nice question as to whether or not personal service contracts such as mine at the university, are forbidden by the 13th Amendment. But that it does something is surely the case, and that some meaningful amendment is certainly sound, and that we have it, I'm glad. Yes, I, I think the, the... And that's the way in which the Dred Scott decision is overcome. It's overcome partly by the 14th Amendment, too. And that 14th Amendment is meaningful. The 14th Amendment is meaningful even if you do not extravagantly construe it to do everything as Hugo Black would say. He said, he said, people tend to believe that whatever ought to be authorized is authorized by the Constitution, and whatever ought to be prohibited by the Constitution is prohibited. It was the point he was making with Eric Severide. And he said, it's simply not the case. He said, this is not necessarily a perfect document. I don't think it's a perfect document. I've already tipped my hand. I supported the Equal Rights Amendment. I did not agree with Phyllis Schlafly. It was too dangerous. I didn't think it would necessarily mean that, that men would immediately be in all the women's restrooms in every state-owned facility. What it said was equality of rights, equality of rights, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And Congress shall have power to enforce the provisions of this order. Now, its sponsors denied that it would immediately mean that all restrooms in public facilities would have to be unisex restrooms. They flatly, and they also denied flatly, and it was a big issue of controversy, I assure you, whether it would mean that if men could not only be drafted into the combat forces, women would also have to be drafted into the combat forces. Said no, they might not be able to elude some degree of selective service, but it would not necessarily be in the front lines. They gave an example of why that would not be required by the amendment, and they didn't desire it. They said the Israeli armed forces early on had conscripted women equally in men, and they put them in the front lines. They came almost at once to regret it, even in the early wars, which they won. They won them all, incidentally, because the enemy would seize women combat troops 
and then in front of the male Israeli troops, raped them, stripped them naked, and raped them on the spot. And the Israelis resolved, never again. We're never going to face that horror again. So that while women serve in the armed force of Israel, they do not serve in the front combat lines. And the sponsors of the Equal Rights Amendment said that would be true here. In the conditions of declared war, in combat circumstances, the rigors of what is faced there provide for a distinction that you could exclude women from all possible military posts is not the case. But there's a line to be drawn. Same thing on the, the other big issue at the time, I sure had to do with gay-lesbian marriage. Phyllis Schlafly said, you ratify this amendment, and it means that any law that restrains lawful marriage to heterosexuals alone is at once unconstitutional. The proponents flatly denied it right down the line said it had nothing to do with sexual orientation as such. It's a very interesting debate. Now, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not keen about these things, but there is a line of Supreme Court cases under the Equal Protection Clause that, in my opinion, honestly aren't reconcilable with the Equal Protection Clause. I don't, I don't have political misgivings about them. I only have academic, scholarly, constitutional Reservation. I think they're unsound. Though I regret that we did not ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, I thought that we had passed a political change and it was due to etch something of that kind that could be done and the terms in which it was drafted were safe to do it. But what's happened, in my opinion, is that proposals like the Equal Rights Amendment become both unnecessary and infeasible. Unnecessary because we get the courts to lever these other things in place anyway. You see? Got problems on the environment? Well, then Congress can legislate across the board. You, you got, you've got a pond in your backyard? You're putting gum wrappers in it? God damn, that's a form of pollution. You can answer the feds to it. The EPA. Better get a license. Fair enough, before you fill it in. I don't think so. But one view is that's the case today. Okay. So next, qu next question, yeah. please. Yes, uh, Ilya. So I'm in George Mason University. So I think you make a good case for sticking to the form amendment process. But I wonder what you do with uh, parts of the Constitution that have been uh, – there are in the text. But one could argue that the rules of Article 5 weren't actually followed. So, for yeah. instance, with the post-Civil War amendments, there's a lot of evidence that the federal government coerced the southern states into right. ratifying these if you go back further with the initial constitution, obviously the ratification of that did not follow the rules of the Articles of Confederation, which was then the constitution was enforced, which required unanimous consent of all the states for any changes. So, uh, uh, so I guess the question is, how, how would you handle yeah. that? Would you simply say, well, pretend that that didn't occur, or is there a different answer perhaps? Thank you. Yeah. Here, Roger. Okay, <laughs> let's make it short because we want to get yeah, to the reception right now. Right. Mm. Well, in the in the original instance, uh, I disagree. That's the way it was done. It's true. The Articles of Confederation required unanimity of uh, the states in order to make any change. And when the Philadelphia Convention is called, it's called um, first. There's a call in Annapolis. Not enough states answer. By the time you get to Philadelphia in 18, 1787, enough qualified. They send their delegates. They're starting out all over again. 
Am I clear with you? They're, they're starting out there. This is an original proposal, and they say this this will take effect when ratified by two thirds of the states. And they get up there. It's very difficult. New York and Virginia are among the last holdouts, and it's a very close question in both states. In both, and I want to emphasize it. In Virginia, Madison finally supports it over the objection of. George Mason, Patrick Henry, with the assurance that when Congress first assembles, they will introduce certain amendments and will change those things, and they do. So my position is, frankly, that when the Constitution achieves its ratification, as it does in 1789, by the requisite number of states as it requires under its own terms, those states have now absented themselves from the compact under the old Articles of Confederation, and they have reunited under a new document, under a new constitution. That is the Constitution of 1789. I do not have reservations about the integrity of the Constitution of 1789 or the Bill of Rights of 1791. You count the ratifications achieved in the various states that were counted. On the 10 amendments, 3 through 12, you get to the number of three-fourths of the states rather rapid, rather easily. Now, when you get to the Civil War, it's a closer question, to be sure. There isn't any question that there's a degree of duress on some of the states. The, the leverage that's being applied is of the following kind. It takes a minute, but bear with me. It's a, it's a worthwhile story. This is a good faith difference. There are some who even now doubt the, uh, the integrity or the pedigree of the 14th Amendment. And it runs like this. Congress, it is not doubted, proposed finally the terminology of the 14th Amendment by the requisite two-thirds of each house. Then it goes to the states. Who's going to be counting? Well, interestingly enough, among the first states to ratify are the former Confederate states. My God, they must have gotten religion. They've seen the light. They listened to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. They heard the Lord trampling out the vintage, and they changed their mind. Not quite. So the observation goes, and the observation is sound. And that is, the, the states have now, the, the legislatures are meeting again. The war's over. They've surrendered at Appomattox. They're up and running, but they're kind of a shell. Very few people are eligible to vote. They elect folks. They even, they even have elections to go to Congress. Got it? But Congress will not allow them to take their seats. And they say... We don't, we're not going to seat you because we do not think the manner in which you have reconstituted the government of your state under your state constitution is consistent with our view of a republican form of government. In our view, the way in which you reorganize yourself after Adamatics is more like, if you like, an oligarchy or a plutocracy. It's not a republican form of government. And until you do that, we're not seating your ostensible representatives. That's the leverage that Congress uses. Now, the, the recalcitrant states do that. That is to say, they do make some changes. And among the other things they do is to vote ratification of the 14th Amendment, which they understand is now going to impose new limitations on the states. That having been done, their representatives, who are now elected by a somewhat larger body politic, do take their seats. Now, don't misunderstand me. Is there a very representative? No, politics. Women aren't voting in those elections. No, no, they're excluded still. And there are a lot of other, there's still some property requirements. In many states, there are poll tax requirements. 
and you know, you know, people don't know this. In my home state, when I went to register to vote, when I turned 21, I had to pass a literacy test. You say, what? This is Mrs. No, it's California, friends. I had to pass a literacy test. I didn't even know it until I passed it because the literacy test consisted of accurately filling out the application. <laughs> That's my name, my birth date, the address, and a few other things. If I could accurately fill it in, then I satisfy them. In other states, it's a little bit harder. You understand? Very interesting, these various tests. Now, some of them were very draconian. In much of the South, they were manipulated. I served in the voting and election section of the Civil Rights Division. The cases we brought were almost all dealing with the manipulation of these voting qualifications. We brought these under old Reconstruction statutes based not even on the 14th Amendment. They were based on the 15th Amendment. And our, our investigation showed that the states were taking something like a literacy test requirement and applying it non-uniformly. I'll give you one thing and then I'll sit down. I'm not, this is it. White person would come and register and they'd say, you've got to take this literacy test. And it says, what does it mean here in the U.S. Constitution when it says you have to be at least 25 years of age to be eligible for election in the House of Representatives? And the person would look at that and say, well, I guess it means you have to be 25 to be elected to the House. Said, That's good, and he passed. Black man would come in. He has a Ph.D. The registrar drives up from the state constitution an obscure, very long clause that in labyrinthine language sets an upper ceiling to the bonded indebtedness that may be incurred by counties and cities within a certain number of years. And we had on file with us affidavits from Ph.D. black men in Forest County, Mississippi. That was the question being asked. And the answer of the black the Ph.D. was, I guess this means that black folks don't get to vote in Mississippi. And boy, he was right. And we filed suit in that case. Why? On the basis that literacy says are per se, no, no. But the racial misapplication, it, it was taken from an old case of the Supreme Court, Yickwo versus Hopkins, the Chinese laundry case that you should remember from Con Law 1. Though the law be fair on its face, if applied with an evil eye and an uneven hand, so to deny equal protection, then it cannot stand. That's the Chinese laundryman case, Yickwo. We used Yickwo again and again and again successfully in 15th Amendment litigation against some of these southern movements. So that's my lesson to you. That does not overread the 15th, does not underread it, and it doesn't try to use the Equal Protection Clause as a tool to redistribute all wealth in the United States by leveling down, which is the ambition of certain people who will want to read it that way, you see? All right, thank you for your attention. All right, let's uh, adjourn for some wine and food upstairs.